the moral principles, at least as many libertarians want to describe them, don't really work. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 127. I'd like to invite you over to our website, Lions of Liberty, for the show notes of the show, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash 127. Before we get into today's guest, I want to tell you quickly about our friends at Liberty Maniacs, the top online store for rebels and rugged individualists. You can find so much great gear over there at Liberty Maniacs, and you can get 10% off your entire order by using the discount code LIONSOFLIBERTY at checkout. Also, if you are sick and tired of being sick and tired of dealing with corporatist Obamacare-mandated health insurance, you need look no further than to what our friends at Health Excellence Select have put together for you guys as an alternative. Check that out at lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today is an economist, a physicist, and a libertarian theorist. He is currently a professor of law at Santa Clara University. He's the author of several books, the most prominent of which is Machinery of Freedom, Guide to a Radical Capitalism, the original version of which was released in 1973, while an updated third edition was released just last year. He is, of course, Mr. David Friedman. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Glad to be here. And I'm glad to have you here, David. And, you know, I always like to start off the show by getting to know my guests a little bit better and getting to find out how they first started down the path towards becoming an advocate for liberty. And, you know, that's where we'll start with you as well. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you first became exposed to the ideas of a libertarian society and what led you to become a lifelong advocate of such a society to the point that you wrote this extensive work, Machinery of Freedom, in order to explore just what that sort of society would look like. I can't really answer the question of how I originally adopted libertarian views since they were in my surroundings. What I remember is that as of about 15 or 16, uh, my view was that the free market was the correct way of handling most things, but that it had to be inside a framework uh, of laws and law enforcement provided outside of the free market, essentially the traditional classical liberal position in which the government functions are police courts and defense. At the same time, it also seemed to me difficult to see how laws had any moral force. That is, as I usually put it, uh, right and wrong are not made by act of Congress. But it also seemed to me that unless people believed that they had an obligation to obey law, it would be hard to make a society work. And that was sort of a puzzle for me. Uh, I decided that I would follow a policy of obeying law until I solved that puzzle, which I tried to do. And eventually, after a few years, it occurred to me that I seemed to be the only person in the world following that policy, that other people thought it was sort of odd not to offer wine to somebody who was under 18 if he was a guest in your house. Nobody stayed to the speed limit. And my eventual conclusion was that for a society to function, you need some combination of laws that people believe are morally just on their own, such as law against murder, plus prudential reasons for not violating too many other laws. Uh, At the same time, at some point, uh, I suppose while I was in college, I concluded that it should be possible to maintain a structure of laws and law enforcement inside the market system rather than outside. And what ultimately I think 
persuaded me that that was a question worth uh, considering was Robert Heinlein's uh, novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, because I sort of thought that I had an implicit proof that you couldn't uh, create laws and law enforcement inside the system. A theorem is disproved by a single counterexample. And it seemed to me that Heinlein in that novel had portrayed a believable society in which there was no government, and yet there was a reasonably law-abiding system. So I set out to try to figure out what the equivalent of that would be in my society, uh, in something more like a modern world rather than on the moon where Heinlein's story was set. And that's really what the ideas in the Machinery of Freedom Part 3 came out of. That, that's so interesting to me that at the end of the day, to give you that sort of final push, it took a work of fiction ultimately. And, and that's something that so many of my guests end up kind of saying, whether it's someone like Ayn Rand or someone like Robert Heinlein, who is a big influence on me as well, that sometimes it takes someone with a vision that's actually seeing things in a quote unquote fictional way, but they're actually portraying how we could realistically, you know, function in society, how we could organize our society without force or whatever way that may be. Not without force. The society Heinlein describes is one in which uh, somebody who uh, makes advances to a young woman that are unwelcome is at risk of being shoved out an airlock into vacuum. Uh, and the society that I describe is one in which there are private mechanisms for applying force in, in enforcement of rights. But I should say that if I had known more about historical legal systems, I might not have needed fiction because I concluded long after I wrote Machinery that I had to some extent reinvented the wheel since there are a fair number of relatively early and primitive legal systems in which law and law enforcement is private uh, and those were functioning systems. So I'm currently working on a book on legal systems very different from ours and some of the ones I'm looking at uh, are essentially primitive anarchist systems in which law enforcement was decentralized, in which lawmaking was to some extent decentralized depending on the system, and nonetheless uh, societies that function. Let's scale back a bit because we, we talk about force and what we really mean, or at least I believe what most anarchists mean when they say, you know, without what we really are referring to is organizing the institutions of society without aggressive force, without using coercion in order to create those organizations. And I know you do refer to yourself as an anarchist. So before we proceed, why don't you just further define exactly what anarchism is to you and why you would define yourself in that way? Yeah, that's a somewhat hard problem because anarchism is a society without a state, uh, without what we usually think of as a government. And then you have to figure out what distinguishes governments from other human institutions. It's very hard to think of anything that a government does that has not at some time and place been done by something that's not a government, up to and including waging war. Uh, so then what defines a government? And the closest I can come to a good definition is that in any society, there are views people hold about how people are allowed to treat each other. So that there are certain things which if people do to you, you're willing to bear quite large costs to stop them. So most of us, if a mugger wants our money, uh, we might surrender, but as long as we've got a reasonably good chance of fighting him off, we will, even if we expect that the costs of fighting him off are probably higher than the amount of money we're carrying that he could steal. And you can think of a lot of other contexts in which in an ordinary society, people think of certain things as their rights. And for my purposes, what I really mean by saying that their rights are they are things that they will bear substantial costs to defend. And I think what defines a government is that it's an organization against which those commitment strategies are dropped. 
so that if a private individual tries to rob you or enslave you, you're willing to go to a good deal of uh, trouble to bear substantial costs to stop them. If the government collects taxes or drafts you for an army or a jury, you just go along, which is why I originally defined back to machinery of freedom, uh, government as an agency of legitimized coercion, where coercion was not really a moral category. It was a behavioral category. It was a sort of acts which other people responded to in a certain way. And legitimized wasn't, a, again, a moral category. It didn't mean that people did or didn't believe it was legitimate or that it was or wasn't legitimate, but only the people acted as if it was legitimate. They dropped their defensive strategies. And then what I mean by an anarchist is somebody who is in favor of a society with no such agency, with no agency of legitimized coercion. So in the society that I imagined in machinery, there are private organizations that sell the service of rights enforcement, but they really have no rights that any individual wouldn't have. They're just specialized in that particular activity. In your book, Machinery of Freedom, you cover basically everything. I mean, literally almost anything you can think of that we might want to explore how a voluntary society might function and how they might provide certain services. And a couple of things that stood out to me just in the beginning of your book, and this is admittedly some of the easier stuff in terms of you know, how we might envision this stuff working, but I found it really interesting how you brought up the ideas of, you know, solving the transportation issue. And you brought up this concept of what you call at the time of jitney stops, basically the idea where private drivers in cities or what have you would have other stops where they basically pick up passengers on a certain route, perhaps a route they're already taking to work or, or what have you that day. And it's interesting because you're not looking at it through the view of the modern technology, but if you think about what's going on today with, with we have Lyft, we have Uber, we have all these ride-sharing apps, we're really basically seeing kind of what you're calling for almost 40 years ago, sort of developing on its own. Obviously, there are a lot of hurdles to this. A lot of uh, you know local cab monopolies don't like that happening, and there's a lot of resistance on the local government level. But we can see this sort of technology developing on its own. And I find that very fascinating. Do you see a lot of the correlations between some of the ways that you call for things and see sort of how modern society is playing out in terms of technology? To begin with, uh, the first edition of Machinery had three sections, and only section three dealt with an anarchist society. The passage you're describing was in section two, which was describing ways in which within our current institutions, you could make the society better and freer. Second, is, as I tried to make clear in that chapter, I wasn't inventing the system. I was describing a system that was functioning 60 years earlier. Uh, I was describing how it might be implemented in, a, in what was then modern technology. Uh, but as I explained, there was an, an old journal article describing the rise of jitneys in the period, I think a little before World War One. And in that case, the competition was not taxi cabs, it was trolley companies, and the trolley companies eventually got the jitneys regulated out of existence. So I don't deserve credit for inventing something uh, that had actually existed and been reported. Uh, beyond that, I was describing ways in which things could be done. And it's not surprising if some of those ways uh, appear as technology changes. Uh, I think a better example, actually, is my somewhat dubious claim to have invented the business model for the World Wide Web. Because I have a discussion, again, in part two of Machinery, responding to the idea that some people in the left had, that if you had a sufficiently productive society, everything could be free, but because capitalism required you sold people things, you would end up not giving things away for free, even if even if the cost of producing them was essentially very close to zero. And I pointed out that in the society as it now exists, there are things that cost almost nothing to produce, such as drinking water. 
And we, in fact, have public fountains provided in loose connection with the selling of other things. We have restrooms and in uh, gas stations, which are really being paid for by selling gas and so forth. And I then suggested that if one had technological progress that made medicine, as it were, too cheap to meet it, something that unfortunately has not happened, that you could then imagine free hospitals with the inside walls plastered with posters advertising whatever was now worth selling, let's say vacation trips or real estate or something. And I want to claim that that's basically the solution people came up with for the problem of paying for web pages. That web pages cost almost nothing to maintain. There's no easy way of charging people directly for them, but it's straightforward to put advertisements on them. And thus, as it were, the walls of my hospital correspond to the uh, web page that gives away information and pays for it by selling advertising. Sure, I mean, that's the, basically the exact same model we see with what we're doing right now, which is on a podcast. And I mean, I put this podcast out for free. Almost every podcast is out there for free. People expect podcasts to be free. But I have a couple short sponsorships reads that I do. And, and that's how I am able to get some value back, you know, by producing this free thing and, and, and bringing in some finances. So anything that's free and, and available can be financed and you can find ways to profit off it. You know, and, and I think that you do such a good job pointing out how this can be applied in so many different areas and in every different area in the book machine area of freedom and of course in that third section you do really get more into a truly anarchist society and a society without any sort of central coercive government whatsoever and i think really one of the toughest roadblocks for most people i mean it's easy to sort of show people how hospitals might work as you mentioned even how things like you know jitney stops and things like that how, how things can be done in a more free way but it really seems like more of a hurdle when we're trying to basically eliminate what people see as the complete central foundation of our society which is a central government so i mean can you just maybe address a couple i know i know you discuss this stuff extensively in your books and obviously it takes a little more thorough reading to get a full understanding of these issues but what were your basic response to speed to someone who is maybe concerned about i mean back when you wrote the first edition in 1973 the concern was over the so Soviet Union and and having that huge sort of empire invading our country and taking over. And now there are those that might see the same concern over, say, an Islamic caliphate, or it doesn't need to be that, but any sort of foreign menace. So, I mean, how would a society without a central government that, that is an organized force prevent what many people would fear of a foreign invasion? Yeah, I would say that the three fundamental functions of government from the sort of traditional 19th century liberal standpoint are police courts and national defense. And that of those three, national defense is actually the hardest one to provide without a government. And the basic problem is that national defense is what economists refer to as a public good, which means not a good government produces, but a good such that the person who produces it can't control who gets it. So that if you produce it at all, all of the members of some pre-existing group will get it. So a Standard example of a privately produced public's good would be a radio broadcast where you can't charge individuals, so you've got to find some other way of paying for it. And we can expect that in a market society, public goods will be underproduced. That is, that the producer won't be able to get the full value of what he's producing since he can't go to people and say you don't get defended unless you contribute. Uh, the question is how badly they're underproduced. That if you have to raise an enormous amount of money to defend yourself, then finding various indirect ways of, of paying it is going to be very hard. If the amount involved is relatively small, it won't be. Uh, and I discussed first in the first edition, I had one chapter, uh, National Defense, The Hard Problem. 
and I sketched some very imperfect ways you might do it. In the new edition, I have a second chapter on that subject in which I go into some more details with some, some new ideas about ways in which you, you might be able to do it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's worth going through that. It's fairly extensive, but it's, it's there. But there are two basic issues. One of them is to what degree people like their society, because in a society whose members like it, people are willing to donate to charity, and one obvious charity would be national defense. Uh, they're willing to volunteer to fight. Uh, I imagine in the new version, combining ideas like paintball, where people are training for fighting as a sport and for the fun of it, along with patriotic uh, emotions, so that you have a whole bunch of groups of people who have trained up for real fighting, are doing it as a game, essentially, with, with referees and such, and a small number of what I think of as the cadre, the, the professional military officers who are funded by charity, plus selling their services for coordinating those games, refereeing, that sort of stuff. But I, you'd have to really go into, into more detail, and, and I say the chapter does that. But going back to the change from the first edition to the third edition, the USSR was, I think, a pretty serious threat, probably not as serious as we thought at the time, but serious enough so that I was in some doubt as to whether voluntary arrangements could raise enough money. Uh, the Islamic Caliphate is not. I did some calculations at the time of the first Iraq war. I added up the GNP of the two sides. And the odds against Iraq measured by economic resources were roughly 100 to 1. That's not a real war. Similarly, uh, if there's an Islamic caliphate, it may be a nuisance to its neighbors. Uh, my guess is that countries like uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and such uh, have enough resources to uh, defend themselves. But it really isn't a serious threat to us that that part of the world doesn't have a lot of resources. It doesn't have a lot of technology. It's mostly interested in itself. Uh, so, so I don't think that we would require very large investments of, of private resources to make it not worth other people's uh, trouble invading us. I think Canada and Mexico are not very likely to try, and the Islamic Caliphate is not very powerful and is very far away. Let's just say for the sake of argument that you, you did that sort of GDP calculation with Iraq, and instead of 100 to 1, Let's say if it was just one to one, if you actually calculated that it could be an even, you know, an even scenario. Is there any any scenario where you would advocate a situation where, as you used to maybe see the USSR, where okay, now it's the the threat is too real, the threat is too large. Now you actually would need a central coercive force. I answered that question in the first edition. What I said was that if you could, if if you concluded that you could not defend yourself, that since your government was probably not as bad as the uh, would be conquerors. It would then make sense to say, well, we'll abolish as much of the government as we can, but we will leave enough of it to provide military defense uh, and hope that in the future you'll be able to do away with that as well. Uh, so it really is, uh, it is a, as it were, a judgment call of whether you can adequately defend yourself. And that's going to depend in part on how dangerous your enemies are. The U.S. is very lucky. We've got large oceans on both sides of us. We have a relatively weak and relatively friendly states to our north and south. Uh, so I don't think it's likely that we're going to have need huge resources. Uh, and I've also discussed uh, in machinery some of the reasons why I expect governments to do a relatively poor job of defense. And in particular, that our government, I think, has a history of getting us into unnecessary wars and thus making defense uh, more less defense and more offense and more necessary than it should be, I guess. 
David, I want to touch upon a debate I recently uh, watched the other day. It was a debate from 1981 between yourself and George H. Smith. And uh, this debate was basically centered around the idea of, of how to advocate for liberty or what the best arguments to make for a free society are. And George Smith took the side of ethics. He believed that we should have a moral argument for liberty while you take the, the other view. I wouldn't call it necessarily the opposite view. I think they're very intertwined. But you would take the economic side and make an economic argument for a libertarian society. So can, can you first start off just explaining why, just the, very briefly, why you believe the economic arguments are the way to go? I think economic is too narrow a way of putting it. Okay. The real question is consequentialist. That is, the form of the argument I want to make is, here are the reasons why the institutions I support would produce more attractive results than alternatives. And as a matter of logic, the one reason to do that is that as far as I know, nobody has yet produced a convincing derivation of ethics. No one has shown what moral views are true that Ayn Rand perhaps thought she did, but I have a, a chapter in the new edition which discusses why I don't think she succeeded. And I go along with David Hume's old argument that you can't deduce ought from is. On the other hand, people have morals. They have beliefs about what's good. And my impression is that those beliefs correlate pretty, pretty strongly, that people don't all agree in detail. They don't agree on things like what rights people have, but most people think that it's better that people be well-fed and educated and happy and housed and things like that. So if I can show that the institutions I favor give the results that almost everybody wants, you don't have to show those results are good. They already believe them. On the other hand, in order to make a moral argument, I would have to be able to show why my moral beliefs are right, or else everybody would have to share those beliefs. Since the moral argument generally involves not just what results are good, but things like initiating coercion is bad, that is, moral conclusions about means as well as ends, uh, and lots of people obviously don't agree on those, I think there's a fairly serious problem. Now, a further problem, which I went into in some detail, I, I think that was in the second edition of Machinery, is that the moral principles, at least as many libertarians want to describe them, don't really work. That if you take seriously strong statements about never initiating coercion, you have no way of deciding how much interference with somebody counts as coercion. So if I own a piece of property, can I forbid airplanes from flying over it? Can I forbid people from making radio broadcasts that can be detected in it? Can I forbid my neighbor from turning on his light, which means his photons are trespassing on my property? And I at least haven't seen a convincing moral argument by which you can say which of those things can be forbidden and which can't. And finally, I think if you imagine situations where there is a trade-off between what we think of as rights violation and other things we care about, and the rights loss is very small relative to the benefits Almost nobody really believes in uh, never violating rights, whatever the consequences. So that my standard example for that, which is a pretty implausible one, is to imagine that an asteroid is heading for Earth. If it hits Earth, it'll kill everybody. There is some way of preventing it, which by some bizarre set of circumstances requires you to steal a nickel from a man who honestly owns the nickel. Are there any libertarians who would really say, I wouldn't steal that nickel? Uh, you can't justify stealing nickel on the grounds of reducing coercion because asteroids don't violate rights. They're not people. Uh, once everybody's dead, there will be no more rights violation ever again. 
uh, but you can justify it on the grounds you have an enormous gain in human uh, results against a very small violation of rights. So those are among the reasons why I find libertarian rights arguments inadequate. Now, at the same time, most people have some sympathy with our moral uh, intuitions. So pointing out that the draft really is a form of slavery uh, is of some effect of convincing some people, but I don't think it's really sufficient. So, I mean, I think let's, let's explore that a little bit further, because to me, I see some areas where I, 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 it's very hard for me to comprehend how an economic argument could actually work on some people. Let's just take one example being the war on drugs. Now, I think there are a lot of people who advocate for the war on drugs that may come at it from a sort of a religious right perspective. They just truly believe that possessing or taking drugs or dealing in drugs or what have you is just simply immoral for whatever reason they may think that. So how can an economic argument persuade someone with that sort of point of view? Because maybe you'll, you know, you just tell them, oh, well, you know, the war on drugs is actually just making all these drugs more expensive. But they'll say, well, good. We want them more expensive. We want we want it to be difficult to get drugs because drugs are just completely bad. They're immoral. So, I mean, what would your response to that be in terms of how how you can persuade people via economics when certain positions they may hold are only coming from some sort of personal morality they hold. I think almost nobody who supports the war on drugs supports it for those reasons. And anybody who does support it for those reasons presumably is also in favor of alcohol prohibition, which is a position that a few people, Muslims in particular, but also some others hold, some a few Christian groups hold on moral principles. Almost everybody who supports the war on drugs believes that drugs have very bad consequences. They believe that the results of people ha using drugs are that they kill themselves with overdoses, they commit crimes while high on drugs, they do a variety of other evil things. And if you can persuade them that they've got it backwards, that the reason why people die from drugs is because they're illegal, not because they're drugs. That heroin was originally invented as a safer medical substitute for morphine. Heroin is a relatively safe medical drug. That is medical quality heroin is. I was told by one physician who was familiar with it that the most serious side effect of heroin use is constipation and that most heroin users go off the drug in about roughly in their, in their forties anyway. Uh, so the reason that heroin is dangerous is that it's on an illegal market where it's hard to maintain quality control. Uh, the reason that injectable drugs were a major cause of AIDS spreading was that it was illegal to buy hypodermic needles to inject yourself with, which gave an incentive for people to share needles. The reason that there was a great deal of crime associated with the war of drugs, just as there was crime associated with the war on alcohol during Prohibition, is that in an illegal marketplace, you people are obviously breaking the law in order to provide people what they want. So I think you would have a hard time finding somebody who, if he believed that abolishing the war on drugs would mean that drug addicts were better off and the rest of us were better off, wouldn't agree you should do it. So, so you believe essentially that even people that are sort of moralizing about drugs, they're not necessarily moralizing, at least in their view, about the drug use itself. They are still looking at it through the consequences of people taking and holding those drugs. It's therefore, that's why it still makes sense to give a consequentialist argument. That's true of almost everybody. As I say, there are some religions, and Islam is the obvious example. Uh, Islam holds that it is a violation of God's commands to drink well, to drink wine. Exactly how broadly that goes depends on the particular school of law. But wine drinking is forbidden to all Muslims. But even in that case, Muslims do not believe that it is a violation of God's law for non-Muslims to drink wine. That in historical societies ruled by Muslims, Jews and Christians were perfectly free to 
buy, sell, and drink wine, although Muslims were not. So even in that case, uh, they are less intolerant than, than you imagine. Uh, I don't know. I'd say my impression is that there are a few Christian sects that disapprove of, of wine, again, sort of on principle, uh, but I don't know how, how they feel about non-members members drinking wine. I'm curious if, if there was a way that I think you're very correct in pointing out that there have not been very good, compelling moral arguments pointed out by many people in the libertarian movement, even when they may sort of have them on the surface, like Ayn Rand, if you really dig deep into them, you'll find that the really the argument isn't there. But now what if, say, something like a libertarian moral could actually be derived in almost a scientific or a mathematical way? You know, if we could actually use rigorous thought process and rigorous expertise to prove something like that, to prove that, you know, non-coercion was moral and correct and just, if we could actually show that naturally, would that change your, your view and your approach at all? Or do you still believe that ultimately, regardless of any sort of moral truth, that the consequentialist approach is still what will be most effective in sort of convincing people for a more free society? If you really had a proof of what moral views were right, then that would be a useful argument to persuade people. But Moral philosophy is not a field that has had a very high rate of progress, that philosophers still read Aristotle, and economists and physicists don't. And there's a reason for that. All right. David Freeman, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. I really think your work, Machinery of Freedom, is, is a must-read for anyone interested in advocating for a more free society, because no matter what approach you take, whether it is that moral approach or the economic or consequentialist, I should say, approach, I, I think it is important to have answers to a lot of the questions people might have about how society would play out, whether it's just altering our current society or whether it is providing a full vision of a truly free society. Before I let you go, David, why don't I let you give sort of the final pitch? Why do you believe that liberty advocates should check out specifically the most recent third edition of Machinery of Freedom. I think the relevant pitch, rather, is that the third edition is available both as a Kindle and as a printed book on Amazon. Uh, it's got about 100 pages more than the second edition, so for people who are familiar with the second edition may find it worth reading. And it's a combination of places where I've gone in more detail and deeper into ideas I already had, plus a good deal of new material. You may also note that I've got a web page and a blog. My web page is daviddfriedman.com. Uh, you can get a link to the blog from there. The blog is called Ideas, and it's basically essays on whatever I feel like talking about, which covers a very wide range. David Friedman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Lions of Liberty podcast, and keep up the great work. Thank you. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my interview there with David Freeman. You know I've got my own thoughts, and I'll get to those in a second. But first, I've got to remind you about our great sponsors at LibertyManiacs.com. If you like discussing the ideas of liberty, as I did today with David Freeman, well, a great way to start conversations is by wearing some cool Liberty gear to get those conversations started when you're out on the town. I've got my Ready for Oligarchy shirt, and hell, I tell you, when people see that thing, they think I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter first until they start looking at it, and they say, wait a minute, that doesn't say Ready for Hillary, and, and this kind of stuff can really get conversations going. you got a lot of great gear over at Liberty Maniacs, and you can get 10% off your entire order by using the discount code Lions of Liberty. So head on over to Liberty Maniacs. Wear something we're saying, folks. And guys, if any of you are like me, you are, if you haven't already, been hit by Obamacare sticker shock. You're going to soon because insurance rates are about to double, if not more, for many people. And corporate mandates are about to kick in as well. A lot of people that seem pretty cozy, their insurance are about to get hit with the Obamacare smack in the face. 
And hey, a great alternative to that, folks, is by looking into this amazing concept of health sharing. It even meets the Obamacare mandate. And you don't have to worry about forcing people to buy insurance. You can opt out of this system entirely and voluntarily contribute to covering the medical expenses and the medical hardships of your fellow man. You can find out more about this great concept from our friends at Health Excellence Select by heading over to lionsofliberty.com health. And I'll tell you what, health sharing is a free market, voluntary solution to health sharing problems, the kind of which David Freeman spends his entire book, Machinery of Freedom, pointing out to people how things could be done better without coercive force, without a coercive government. Now, I emphasize the word coercive there, and I don't even know if coercive is the exact word because, you know, the more I think about society and how things should be structured, I'm not really against coercion overall. What I'm against is aggression, you know, aggressively violating the rights of others. Now, a big problem with this, of course, is that many people have different ideas about what rights are. Some people don't believe rights are even a thing. They're just something some people believe in. And of course, if you have that belief, as David Freeman does, and as many others do, many other people I respect greatly, many other people who strive for a lot of the same goals do, If you don't have a conception of rights, of individual rights, well then yeah, you're left with nothing else but consequentialist arguments, and that is what David Freeman puts forth. The argument that if this, then that. And he believes that mankind, or most people, generally already have beliefs about what they want to see in the world. They don't want suffering among men. They don't want people to go hungry. They don't want people to be addicted to drugs and out in the street. Therefore, through the study he has done on how these things could be structured in society, what he believes is that the best argument, therefore, to make is to show people how not having aggressive institutions... Having a free society can actually create those results they want. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that argument on a per-issue basis when people might question, well, well, how is this going to happen? How is that going to happen? I think it's actually very important to have some answers to a lot of these things. And David Friedman certainly does an excellent job of analyzing and looking at these issues on many different levels. He, he, like he mentioned, he looks at how we could take our current society and make things a little bit better. He also goes to the, the full extreme, as some people might say, and, and just looks at how things could work with no government at all. And I think these exercises are very important. They're very good things for liberty-minded folks to look at. However, screech, put on the brakes. You know I'm going to have however, guys. In order to really have a vision, have a grand vision we can present to people about what society should be, it has to come from some sort of basis. And it has to be based, in in my view, on a common morality that we can look at and point at and say, this is right, this is just. And that's how we can point at the other stuff and they say, that is wrong. What's going on over there is wrong. And I said I'm not against coercion, and some people might take that the wrong way. Some people might go and snip off that soundbite and try to make me sound like a tyrant. But you know, I'm not against coercing, say, someone holding a bunch of children, slaves. I'm not against coercing that person into releasing those children. That's coercion. He doesn't want to do it, and I want to use physical violence to stop him. I want that. I think that is correct. And whether that's done because, you know, the society has some sort of consequentialist view about it, well, that might be one way it could go down. But to me, if society by and large thinks, well, yeah, children should be slaves. That's fine. I think we think that's how we should get our labor. I mean, we used to have societies where 
children were slaves, where adults were slaves, in our not-so-recent past, in this very country, in our current present, in many parts of the world, this still goes on, where humans are slaves. So it's very clear that many people have different moral views about how to act towards our fellow man, about when it's correct to use violence upon them. I would use violence upon the slave owner. I would not use violence to make someone a slave in the first place. And I really have a disagree with David Freeman when he says that you know, he doesn't believe that people actually moralize in reality. He really believes that all the moralizing really is consequentialism at its core. And I just don't believe that to be the case. I mean, how many people are against gay marriage for specifically some moral reason because they read it in the Bible? And they, they literally want to use government to stop people from having any sort of contractual union. They want to use the violence of government to cease that from happening. Those people are out there. Not everybody opposed to government legalized gay marriage feels that way, to be clear. But there are very obviously to me people that want to infringe on what I see as the individual rights of others to freely interact. Now, the most interesting point that David Freeman made, and I truly believe this is a fascinating thing he said, and he basically said, if you could come up with a way to look at rights that was objective and was very sort of scientific in the way we look at it, we could actually say these very clearly are natural rights, we can show this, well then yeah, it might change the way he argues. And I'm, I'm with him. I'm with him in many ways. Because I agree, there has not been a broad consensus, liberty view of natural rights presented that has really caught on with the masses. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That doesn't mean it's not out there. I've mentioned it a bunch of times, and I don't want to sound like a shell, but I have to bring up good works that I think are good, that I have helped guide me. And Shane Whistler's work, Reason and Liberty, as well as, as his book, Individual Rights, I think does an excellent job of pointing out why natural rights are something we can very clearly and plainly see. We can rigorously use a thought process to see, yes, this is the correct way for man to act. And people that do violate individual rights with others should be corrected themselves with violence. <laughs> I don't like the word violence. I used to say I was anti-violence. But of course I'm not anti-violence if you think about it. I used to say I'm anti-death penalty. And in our current system, I am anti-death penalty. Because our current system is clearly, clearly unjust. But clearly, if I had to think about it, I'm not really against the death penalty enacted by other human beings. If someone breaks into my house and they're a threat to my family and I kill them, well, clearly I decided there I was for the death penalty in that case. So we really need to look at things, and now David Freeman points out, well, yeah, you can't objectively say that X amount of particles in the air equal aggression, or that a plane a certain height over your property would be aggression, and I agree that's not necessarily something you can just parse out through a conception of individual rights, but that doesn't mean that there's no such thing. That means we there's nuance to situations, and we need methods by which arbitrating that nuance takes place. Whether it's common law courts, whether it's private courts, like the way David Freeman lays out, whether it's through humans forming voluntary systems of government to create bodies of law. These are all methods I've explored on past episodes of this show. I'll link to a few past interviews in our show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 127. But at the end of the day, if people in a certain society have bad ideas about how they should act towards their fellow man, i.e. bad morality, well, you're going to get bad results. That's the consequence of bad ideas. That's my consequentialist view. Bad ideas lead to bad results in our society, so that's why I focus on the ideas 
But I'm glad there's people like David Freeman out there focusing on the nuts and bolts. I do find it fascinating. I think you do as well. We'll, of course, link to his book as well in our show notes today. If you enjoy this show, folks, there are so many ways you can help me with it. And a lot of them are free. Such as heading over to iTunes, subscribing to the show, even if that's not how you listen, leaving us a review, hopefully a great review, hopefully a five-star rating. But I can't tell you what to do, guys. If you've made it this far, I have to think you think somewhat highly of what we're doing over here at Lions of Liberty. I want you guys to interact with us, too. I'm not just trying to preach. I'm trying to have a conversation, and there are many ways you can interact with us on our social media. Find us over on Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. Find us at Facebook.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. And if you want to have some conversations with myself, with some of our contributors to our website, some of our past guests on this very show, you can do that on Facebook at the Lions of Liberty Forum. We'll link to that as well, but you can search that on Facebook, Lions of Liberty Forum. It is our private group. Just send me a little request to join, and you can come on in and join the conversation. Of course, don't forget about our great affiliates, LibertyTalk.fm, where you can hear us every Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can also hear us throughout the week on the Liberty Radio Network at LRN.fm. Until next week, folks, live long! And live free! Head of Editing and Mastery is John Dobbins.